Hey, we're back with The Quantified Body. I'm Damien, your host, and I want to say a big thank you to yet another iTunes review. So uh, this one's from Happy Runner Girl, and she says, actionable and cutting edge information. Often you get either cutting edge or actionable info, but rarely both. In this podcast, Damien brings it all together. I have learned a great deal and hugely appreciate the effort he puts in to booking great guests that you're not hearing anywhere else. Episode 38 is a fantastic example. His interview style is efficient, his questions are insightful, and there is nothing gimmicky or salesy, not a word, but you know what I mean here. All told, this is one of the best podcasts in the health and fitness space. Wow, I'm, I'm that just makes me feel great about doing this, and I hope I can live up to these expectations, which are, are pretty big here. I would like to really thank you, Happy Runner Girl, because um, this kind of posting and feedback is really motivatory for me to get more and more of these episodes out. It makes me feel like I'm doing a good job here. Thank you. Today, we're looking at tracking fitness status. Now, I know a lot of you do this, and I know a lot of you do it in different ways. We've looked at a few ways in this podcast. We've talked about VO2 max in our past. We've talked about heart rate variability a lot. And we've also talked about the many, many trackers, Fitbits, and so on, which are tracking physical activity level. Now, today's guest found it difficult with these measures to get what he really wanted. So he looked into it a bit more. He says that what I wanted to know as a runner and what I believe most people want to know is how fit I am, meaning how is my fitness evolving due to training and other changes I am possibly making to my lifestyle. And he found that he couldn't capture that. So he went out to develop his own approach to it. And that's what we're going to be discussing today. His name is Marco Altini. He's a PhD data scientist and entrepreneur. He's really working right in the middle of his space. He's spent a lot of time working on heart rate, HRV, fitness, and physical activity analysis via wearable sensors, so a lot of the heart rate trackers, physical activity trackers, and so on. And he's published over 25 papers on the topic. He has a HRV for training app, which is available on the iTunes store, uh, which is really popular, and I've used myself also for overtraining monitoring. And he has a variety of other heart rate related apps also. So he's really done a lot of work in just this specific space. And if you're in the quantified self community, you probably know Marco already because a lot of his posts are widely circulated because they're normally really rigorous and interesting. Today, he heads up data science activities at Bloom Technologies, where he's using technology and data to help women to have healthier pregnancies. So we also touch on that also. I'm running this little sponsorship experiment right now to see if we can bump up the resources and get this podcast out to you more often. So what I'm looking for are sponsors who have potentially a great product or service in this space, in the whole health tech, um, the areas we talk about. So if that sounds like you or that sounds like someone that you know, please, please let them know to reach out to me at Damien at thequantifiedbody.net by email or tweet to me at Twitter. I'm at biohacks. Thanks for your attention there. Now, please enjoy today's interview. The Quantified Body. New technologies are bringing us more and better data on our bodies every day. This data promises to help us make better decisions for better health, higher performance, less disease, and greater longevity. In The Quantified Body, we explore this promise to find out where it is creating real world results, improving bodies, and improving lives. Hi, Marco. Thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you. My pleasure. 
So I wanted to get first into a little bit of a story about where you're at and how you got into measuring fitness and looking at that specifically. What's your background? What's your interest in this area? So basically, I have been doing a PhD all around using wearable sensors to monitor energy expenditure. Well, this is more, let's say, on the machine learning aspect. So integrating multiple data streams to try to get to accurate measurements of uh, physical activity which is normally what we focus on is energy expenditure, so basically the intensity of the activity. And taking a step back, let's say most of the research in the field focused on uh, the component of energy expenditure, which is due to physical activity, right? So to body movement, because energy expenditure is actually composed of three elements, right? So we have diet-induced thermogenesis, which is the energy expenditure we expand due to digesting, for example, right? And that's something we consider as a sort of standard component, about 10%. Then we have our basal metabolic rate, which is basically the calories we burn at rest. So if we take a bit of a simplistic view, is what we would consume if we were not doing any activity, right? We lie in bed all day and we still consume actually most of our energy, which is due to this component, right? And then the third component is physical activity and energy expenditure, which is the calories we burn when we move or exercise. So by working a lot around this component and trying to estimate this more accurately using accelerometer and heart rate data, then I started focusing on aspects like personalization because When you use physiological data like heart rate to estimate energy expenditure, you basically rely on parameters which are very well correlated with energy expenditure at the individual level. So for a single person, because of course, heart rate is directly connected to oxygen uptake, which is also what we measure when we want to get reference for energy expenditure. At the same time, there are individual differences between people. So you need to try to understand how to model these differences between people in a way that your energy expenditure estimate coming from heart rate is accurate. And while working around this, basically you get to work on uh, what is the problem of basically normalizing heart rate between individuals, which is directly connected to fitness. Because everyone tends to know that lower heart rate means better fitness. This is true during at rest, but even during exercise, which is, as a matter of fact, the principle behind, for example, submaximal fitness tests, right? So people are brought to the gym and they do an exercise at a certain intensity. And then based on what the heart rate you get, basically a surrogate of their fitness level. And all of that then came back as something that you need to account for also when you measure energy expenditure, because the whole reason behind normalization is that the, our metabolic response to exercise is not affected by fitness. So just have an example that clears this up is if you think about, let's say, two individuals which are the same in terms of age, body weight, body mass, like pretty much the same, let's say, anthropometric characteristics, then when they do a certain activity, they consume the same energy, okay? So it's the same kilocalories per minute because that's mainly driven by the type of activity and the body mass, right? However, these two individuals could be having a very different fitness level. So let's say that one is very fit and while doing these activities, the heart rate is very low and the other one is very unfit and the heart rate 
is much higher than if you use heart rate to estimate energy expenditure. You will be overestimating or underestimating for one of the two people. So which would, so the one with the fast heart rate is overestimating? Yes, if you have a higher heart rate, and then you don't take into account that there is a difference in fitness, then you will assume this person is consuming more energy because the heart rate is higher with respect to the average, let's say, exactly. But that's not the case because actually metabolism is not affected by fitness. And there have been quite a few studies looking both at rest and during exercise and even basal metabolic rate, the component of energy expenditure. So what we're saying is like there's a lot of devices out there right now which are attempting to assess how many calories exactly. you're burning in addition to the steps. So when you're looking at that, actually, it's a bit more complicated than the standards currently used, right? Yeah, exactly. Especially manufacturers which are using providing sensors with, with heart rate. They like to claim that just because there is heart rate, they will be more accurate, right? And Let's say that using heart rate certainly is already a step forward compared to accelerometers because you can, with minimal effort, already take into account energy expenditure for many activities which don't involve body movement, right? For example, with accelerometers, we have limitations even just biking because you might have the accelerometer in a place where it doesn't move when you do these activities, right? So by using heart rate, you can solve partially these issues because of course your heart rate will increase it doesn't matter if you don't move if you're doing an exercise which is intense and of course requires your heart to uh, pump more oxygen to your muscles right but at the same time due to the fact that the relation with heart rate is very personal then you need to be able to make an extra step and model that if you want your system to be accurate during intense physical exercise great so in terms of the, the tech out there currently, would it be safe to say that a lot of it's either underestimating or overestimating based on these restrictings? Or are there devices or apps out there which have tackled this problem? So I think what we are starting to see a bit more is, for example, in the context of even just uh, monitors using, for example, movement or steps, some of them are introducing something more around context, which is important because when you use accelerometers, these first systems were probably there already in the late 70s, for sure in the early 80s. Researchers started to develop the first equations to link uh, accelerometer output and movement to energy expenditure. However, some of the limitations there are that, for example, the relation between the accelerometer output and energy expenditure changes depending on the activity, right? So if you are walking or running, it's a different relation. If you are at rest, of course, there is no movement and all of that. So recently we started seeing even commercial devices which are able to detect activities. For example, I think the, the basis watch is detecting a couple of activities. Even apps like the Moves app can detect activities. So in general, I would assume, even though they don't disclose the methods they use to estimate energy expenditure, I would assume the ones that are able to detect the activity. Then what they do, they use this table. It's called uh, the Compendium of Physical Activities. Basically, it's a table where you have almost all possible activities you can think of. And for each of them, there is a value of energy expenditure normalized by body weight that people are supposed to be expending when doing that activity. Okay. So these devices are probably mapping the activity they recognize to this level of energy expenditure. 
this method in research already like four or five years ago to be much better than using accelerometers without context, but it's even better than combining heart rate and accelerometers if you don't take extra measures like modeling context or normalizing heart rate. So just putting together accelerometers and heart rate is not able to outperform methods where you use only accelerometer data, but with a bit more of machine learning to be able to recognize what activity is being performed and then map that to an energy expenditure level. Right. It sounds like if you have the heart rate and you have the anthropometric data, right? What's your weight and age and so on. And if you have the accelerometer data showing the movement and you have an algorithm which categorizes what kind of activity it is based on the accelerometer, what that's showing, which I know isn't always correct based on my experience, right? So, so sometimes, for instance, I was wearing the basis and it will say I'm on a bike where I never go on a bike or stuff. So it isn't quite perfect yet, but we'll assume that that's getting better and maybe it's already better. Then what they're doing is they're, they're looking at the activity and they're saying, well, for this type of activity, this heart rate is standard for this kind of fitness and this heart rate is standard for this kind of fitness. Is that how it works? So they're able to get at it or is it a more basic thing right now? I think step zero would be simply to map it to known values, regardless of your heart rate. Let's say an app without heart rate, like the moves up. So you just have uh, the activity type and you map that to energy expenditure. Yes, like the average energy expenditure for that activity for a person. So like you're walking and of course you can walk at many different speeds and maybe that's not known by the app. But still you would assume for uh, the average walking speed for the average person you would consume these many calories. And when you detect walking, you just map it to that. And then based on other characteristics you input, like your body weight, you scale that by your body size, basically. And then if you do a bit of a more advanced work, let's say, and you want to develop your own model for a specific activity, let's say you have the basis, and at basis they have a couple of more physiological parameters together with movement, and then they could develop their own regression models by collecting reference data. So normally we do that with indirect calorimetry. So that's a device which has basically a mouthpiece where you breathe and it's measuring uh, O2 and CO2. Okay, So you convert O2 and CO2 in body heat and that's basically energy expenditure, right? So by having people performing different activities, wearing the basis watch while you measure this reference calorimeter data, then you can see how all these variables change depending on the activity. And then you can map, let's say, heart rate changes and movement changes to energy expenditure for a specific activity. I don't know if they're doing that because that would require to do all the tests with the calorimeter. I would assume, considering that they have all that physiological data that they did also this kind of development, while maybe the, all the other devices, which are simply accelerometers, they might have simply used the MADS value from the compendium of physical activity. Basically, the compendium of physical activity is what you use also when you, let's say you use an app for tracking your workout, like RunKeeper, that lets you also manually enter the activities, right? So maybe one day you didn't have your phone and you want to enter it manually. And then it will also estimate your energy expenditure. And that's basically just a lookup from this table. And then it's just scaled by your body size and for the amount of time you did the exercise. 
Okay, great. So, so what we're talking about here is like a physical activity level, right? These are different versions of it. There's energy expenditure and there's steps, which is currently what's on the market, right? All these devices are looking at quantifying our physical activity level. I guess the question is, is that what people really want in, in terms of the end game? Because you've got this app out, which is trying to get at something which you feel is a bit closer to the end goal of what you want to measure. Yeah, so while I was doing research here on, uh, on energy expenditure, and the more I go close to the whole personalization story, basically I was thinking, what is a way to quantify not only what activity you do, right? The amount of exercise, the steps, but also what is the impact of this activity on your health, if there is any impact. So this is a process in which we try to move from uh, quantifying physical activity behavior to quantifying physical activity related health markers. And one of these markers, uh, which is probably the most important one, is cardiorespiratory fitness. That's kind of well known. That's been a, a standard for a long time in terms of quantifying fitness, but it's only been done in kind of laboratory contexts, as I understand it. Exactly. So for, as you say, it's been already, I think, 20, 30 years that we know for sure that all these studies show that low level of cardiorespiratory fitness is uh, indicative of higher risk of getting different sort of diseases and even in general of just what is called all-cause mortality. So you're just most likely to live less, basically, if you have low level of fitness. And what is interesting here is that this is true even when it's basically controlled by physical activity or body size. So it means that it doesn't matter even if you are obese or if you have less levels of activity, but as long as your cardiovascular fitness is higher, you tend to be like protected with respect to all these other issues. And indeed, we, we, we know that, like the research community at least, is well aware of the importance of cardiovascular fitness. But in the general population, I think we still uh, lack awareness on this, mainly because, as you say, there is basically no tools, right? So the way this is measured is in laboratory conditions. The, the reference is called VO2max test. And, well, VO2 is the oxygen volume, and it's called VO2max basically because the way the, access, the, the test works is that you get people um, either to do a treadmill test or a biking test in which they bike or run until exhaustion. So you increase the intensity of the exercise every five minutes or so. And then uh, basically there is a point in which the individual is still able to keep it going at that intensity just a bit before you drop and then your oxygen has sort of plateau and that's your VO2 max, okay? What does that signify? Is that the moment when you switch to anaerobic or what does it signify physiologically? Well, that it's really the moment in which you cannot take any oxygen anymore. Like you need to stop, like you need cannot you cannot take any more intense activity. So that's the max oxygen you can take. Right. So it's like your maximum ability to metabolize. It's the ability of your uh, circulatory respiratory system to provide oxygen to your muscles for sustaining exercise. Great, great. So it's showing that efficiency. And when people are looking at that, let's, let's talk a bit, a bit about the decisions. Typically, when you have these meters, when people are using these activity tracking meters for whether it's biking and, and running and, and so on, typically they want to improve something. They either want to lose weight sometimes, 
or they want to improve their fitness, or they want to improve their health. So you've like you've talked a little bit about just there. You noted that cardiorespiratory fitness. We say that that has a protective effect against heart disease, which is one of the biggest killers, right? And also, if our cardio fitness is better, is is more efficient, then we're probably going to be able to run further and run faster, right? We're going to be able to perform better, which is also something that we want. Whereas the steps and the energy expenditure, it's hard to understand how that reflects either of those two cases, kind of like the use cases, health or or better performance, right? And with steps and energy expenditure, you can tell that you've you've done more in terms of quantity, but you can't really tell if it's going to give you more performance or you've actually got a health benefit. Yeah, so I think there is an opportunity in trying to quantify what is the, the fitness levels that you can have. You can have uh, feedback for the ones that are interested just from a health point of view to see if, if exercise is having an impact. You can have, it actually even for professionals, it would be like they do the VO2max test and they know their actual cardiovascular fitness level, but still you cannot do that that often and it takes time. It's expensive in, in some, I think it costs like 300 bucks or something. Because I looked up some, when I was in the US recently, I was going to do one in San Diego and they had a gym that was actually providing it. Sometimes you can go to laboratory health centers or like, and or sometimes some some advanced gyms will have the equipment to do this. Yeah, so I think there are a few limitations around the VO2max test. Apart from the cost, certainly you need some uh, medical supervision and you need, again, the calorimeter to measure the oxygen. It requires a certain level of infrastructure. And apart from that, I think sometimes it's even tricky to um, interpret the result. Because so VO2max is normally reported, normalized by body weight, right? So you need to provide people with an easy way to understand their fitness level. So you have these tables where basically different levels are divided by gender and by age, okay? So if you are a person of a certain age and you're male and then you have your VO2max result and then it puts you in a certain category, okay? But however, these tables are not organized by body weight, only by gender and age, since the results are normalized. However, the exercise type you use to acquire the VO2max data is not part of this table. So, and that has, has a great influence on oxygen consumption, because if you do, even just when you normally measure energy expenditure, if you do an activity which is weight bearing, right, you literally carry your weight around, like when you walk or run, then the link between oxygen consumption and body weight is much stronger compared to when you just bike, right? Because in like, especially for stationary biking in the gym, your energy expenditure is much more similar to the one of a person which is of different body size compared to you. While if you would be walking or running, there would be much bigger difference because it's a different impact of body weight. Even like in one of my recent studies during my PhD, I measured VO2 max on a group of 60, 70 people. And for example, there I had a subject which was unfit. So all the parameters that we measured seemed to show that his fitness level was quite poor. He had very high heart rate at rest, very high heart rate during all exercises. He couldn't finish some of the protocols during the free living part. Also, his physical activity level was very low. And the VO2max test, the biking VO2max test, uh, returned as, as a result that he was the most unfit person as well. However, if we go to normalize the VO2 max, so we divide by body weight, 
this guy became the second most fit of the entire data set just because it's very thin, right? Uh-huh. And that's actually the result normalized by body weight is what you normally get because it's common practice to report it that way. But at that point, how do you interpret it? Yeah. So it's a bit tricky to make it. So VO2max is the gold standard in terms of measuring this. Exactly. But it has its own limitations. Yeah. If someone was to go and take that test, what would you suggest they make sure, like what to check in order to get a, a result that's useful for them? Is there anything they can look out for or ask for? So in my opinion, at this point, I came to think that maybe a running test would be a better way to do it because the relation with body weight is a bit more clear than compared to the biking test. However, normally a biking test is done also because of safety reasons. So it's, it's a bit easier to do a, max, a maximal test on a bike. Uh, it's a bit uh, more of a controlled situation. However, when you then go to normalize by body weight, the fact that your body weight doesn't have the same impact because you're biking and you're not carrying your weight around, then you risk to have these uh, weird results like we did, where the normalized VO2max basically makes an unfit person the most fit person. That's one of the reasons why I prefer to use VO2max data non-normalized. So I use the value of oxygen consumption they reach, and that's it. I don't normalize it by body weight. Okay. So are there benchmarks for that? If they get a specific score back, they can assume they're relatively fit or... Uh, do you... Yeah, the problem with that is that then you don't have this. Uh, at least I'm not a- a- aware of that there are these uh, tables for, you know, matching it to something like human readable, like, you know, fitness is poor or average or good. Like these tables are all normalized by body weight. So that's sort of a problem. So what you're saying is like, if you were to do this twice you could get your relative fitness without normalization, right? If I took a test today and I took another test in, in six months. Exactly. So you could track longitudinally. That's no problem. Maybe it's more difficult to compare with other people. Right. So and is there any way we can get around the issue of normalization so that it works for us? There is uh, submaximal tests which are not, which are not bad. So basically, submaximal tests, the way they work is that, of course, they, they want to predict we are two marks. And they rely on the fact that we know, as I was saying before, that heart rate changes based on fitness, right? So instead of doing a maximal test and measuring oxygen consumption until exhaustion, you do a test as a predefined speed. For example, you run at a certain speed or you bike at a certain intensity, and then you measure your heart rate. And that goes into an equation that was developed before using reference VO2max, which is basically predicts your VO2max based on uh, your submaximal heart rate and a bunch of other parameters like uh, your age and body weight and all these other parameters. And, you know, the, the simplest of these tests, actually, they don't even require to measure heart rate, for example. I think something interesting is uh, that we are seeing now is um, also to bring awareness to people with uh, Apple that launched the research kit. And we got this app from uh, Stanford, which is called My Heart Counts, I believe. So they measure, they ask you a lot of things and get a lot of reference points on your lifestyle and what you do. And then they track using the phone your activity. But they also, since the study is all about cardiovascular health, they ask you to do this fitness test, which is uh, one of the most 
commonly used because of his simplicity, I would say, where you just you have to walk for six minutes, I think, and then you have then you have to time it, right? So and you have you have to check the distance basically. So if you the longer distance you go in six minutes, probably the more fit you are. And again, here you don't need physiological data, and this might be probably a better test for people which are not in optimal health conditions. But I think it's good because the app is also targeting healthy users. So it's a good indication that fitness should be of interest for the general population. And there is an effort here to raise awareness. This being said, I think the potential of current technology is much higher. So you can do much better than that. And you can overcome also the limitations you had because until now you had to either do a to max test, which is expensive, and that's all the limitations you discussed. Or even if you want to do a sub-maximal test, you need still to go to the gym. You need to do the exercise as an exact intensity. And then you need to, to do your math to get what your view to max would be. But right now, by since we have, we have phones with all sorts of sensors, like, and then we have wearable sensors and we have heart rate monitors and all of that. And then we have algorithms that can already automatically understand if you're walking or running or what is the speed, like you don't even need a treadmill anymore to understand the context around the activity you're doing. So some of the work we've been doing recently as part of our research is indeed to give people just a phone and a wearable sensor and don't ask them to do any specific activity. They just live their life for two weeks while wearing the sensor. And then all the algorithms will automatically understand in which location they are and what kind of activity they are doing if they're walking, then what is the speed. And then basically you put your heart rate in a specific context continuously. And by knowing that, since your heart rate still will be affected by your activity and your fitness, and you isolate the activity because you know the context, and then you can estimate the fitness level basically without requiring any test anymore. So I think that's quite interesting because you can finally get to something that is usable by everyone and doesn't require to do specific tests. And again, if you want to monitor them longitudinally, you don't need to do a test every month, right? Because you just wear the sensor and it's sort of being uh, continuously updated just by wearing it. So when you say longitudinally, that means testing ourselves in time. And seeing if we've got an improvement or a decline over time and see if, exactly. see if what we're doing is actually working or not. Yeah, yeah. See if there is uh, basically changes at the individual level. Mm. So this is basically what your Stay Fit app does? So basically with this app, I try to make something where you don't even need the sensor anymore, right? So in the research, we use research prototypes. Basically, it's a necklace. You wear it and there is ECG lead, so you get full ECG. And then we extract heart rate. Then there is an accelerometer, which we use for activity recognition and walking speed. Then with the phone, we use GPS to understand location and all of that. However, even if now you have some trackers that do heart rate, like the latest Fitbit or the basis, we don't have access as developers to all of the raw data that you would need to develop algorithms on top of these devices. So what I was thinking is, well, of course, if you have heart rate, data during all of these activities, your fitness estimate can be more accurate. But uh, at the same time, heart rate at rest 
has been shown to be linked fitness. So the lower heart rate at rest, the higher fitness. And uh, this was the case in many studies, even interventions uh, about physical activity, trying to increase physical activity, often showed that they were also able to reduce heart rate at rest. So what I did with this app was to combine the two aspects. So using just the phone, you can get activity level based on the step counter, which is on the phone. And this data is transformed in energy expenditure and in physical activity level. And then it combines that with heart rate. And again, since you need context, the way the app is used is by taking a short test in the morning, similarly what to what the, all the HRV apps do. So just to clarify, that means like when you wake up in the morning, you take a reading before you do anything else? Yeah, exactly. So that's the easiest way to isolate context without having to go through much trouble. You just, you know, you wake up, you take your test. That's at least the, the moment we are the least affected by all other parameters and stressors. And then you get your heart rate at rest, which goes in the system together with a bunch of other parameters to get you an estimate of fitness. And what is what the app is actually estimating is basically your submaximal heart rate, which is then transformed to a number between 0 and 100. But the whole point here is that since submaximal tests basically measure your heart rate at a certain intensity, because that's what then goes in the formula to estimate VO2max. But if you consider that your age and gender and body weight will stay pretty much the same if you do two tests in a short period of time, then the actual measure of fitness is your submaximal heart rate. So your VO2 max will be different only if your submaximal heart rate is different. So here I, I remove the VO2 max step and I estimate directly the submaximal heart rate, which is a proxy to fitness, basically. Great. And how have you seen this like workout? Because you've been using this app for a while and you've I guess you've gathered some user data now as well. Yeah, I did. Not that much, I must say. So I cannot really make any analysis yet, especially because I don't have a reference point either. So this is more of an individual tool that you might want to use to track your fitness. But it's I don't know the VO2 marks of the people using it. So maybe it's something for, for future versions would be to try to add some other reference points so that I can do some further analysis like I did with them. Um, with HRV apps. Great. So in your own, own case, how long have you been using the app and, and, and have you noticed any differences in your fitness? And for example, your running time, because I know you're a runner and you developed it primarily because of that interest. So have you noticed or seen differences in your in your fitness level in terms of your efficiency and your performance and seen those correlated in the app or how's it going? So I used it for about two months. I think something interesting, I think, is, uh, is around the metrics that are used. So, for example, I use the physical activity level as a measure of activity. So the physical activity level is a normalized version of energy expenditure. Okay. So if you tell me your energy expenditure today is... Uh, 4,000 kilocalories, I can't really infer anything because if you are severely obese, that may be just your energy expenditure at rest when you do no activity, right? On the other hand, if you are a thin person and a small person, then it means that you've been very active. So the total energy expenditure is difficult to interpret without knowing who are we talking about. And the physical activity level is the energy expenditure divided by the 
basal metabolic rate, so the component we said is your metabolism at rest. So in this case, you would get a value which is representative of how much you move. So if you don't move at all, it's one. And if you move a lot, typically it doesn't get much beyond two. Okay, So that's a good indication of uh, physical activity. And it's based on energy expansion, which I think also is important because sometimes, for example, something I could see in my data is that I went for a trip and I did a lot of hiking, which is a lot of activity, but at the same time, it's not really cardio activity or activity that I believe would improve my fitness level. Like It's not like when you go running and, you know, the intervals on a track, it's movement, but I would assume my fitness stayed more or less constant those days, right? And if I look at uh, steps, uh, I see that I've been much more active than my average, like because you walk all day and it's much more steps than when you go training. So if my fitness was just based on my activity, I would uh, get theoretically more fit when being walking on holiday. However, since we use energy expenditure, the energy expenditure, the normalized energy expenditure, the physical activity level, that was pretty much the same as it was when I was here and I was training because the activity when I train here is much more intense and it consumes much more energy than when you're just walking. So I think that's a valuable point of using physical activity level as energy expenditure to track fitness instead of just movement or steps. Okay, so for, for your hiking and so on, did you see your fitness level change in the app? Because it gives an index of 1 to 100. Yeah, exactly. So it stayed pretty much the same. Right. So so you saw that basically that, that case was shown in the results. Did you do anything where you saw your performance improve on your app and you correlated it to basically better times or, or other things that seem to be improving? For now, I just saw it dropping, which is not good. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. I guess my condition is not ideal, but I think this is interesting to track over a long time. Like I tracked for two months and I don't race that often. Maybe for like professional person would be more interesting because they their life is training. For me, it's more of a hobby. But I think like looking after a year or so, and then you can track it, like you can look at it with respect to maybe the half marathons you did and the times you did, and then you get all these reference points, then it can be interesting. So, um, you know, I've been doing some work around HRV, for example, and there it's very valuable on like on a daily basis, right? Because the whole point is that you measure basically the response to the stressors, which can be the training, and you get basically a, a daily advice on how to train and if your body is ready for another intense training. On the other hand, this one tracks a more like a parameter which changes much more slowly like fitness doesn't change fast so yeah right so this one strikes me as it would be more useful to understand the effectiveness of your say your program like use the protocols you're using to increase your fitness over the longer term right so a lot of people will follow a set set program for a while especially especially if you're an athlete a professional athlete um, you'll ever set work, a workout and, and timing and everything. So you could kind of evaluate the performance of that and if it's increasing in the fitness one. But as you said, because a lot of people are using a HRV today, we've looked at the HRV in the context of stress, of longevity, and um, also, of course, the training in terms of recovery, which you just mentioned. So I could imagine that some people might look at HRV and be thinking, oh, my HRV is, is higher, so I'm fitter. 
right? Because we're also looking over time rather than the day-to-day looking at the trend. Would you say that's the case or is it, is, do you think that's not an accurate way to look at HRV? I think HRV is great as a, as a day-to-day tool for recovery and a proxy to parasympathetic activity. And it is true that even at the cross-sectional level, let's say athletes tend to have higher HRV and very sedentary people tend to have lower HRV. But the link between HRV and fitness is, let's say, far from being clear, meaning that there have been many studies and some of them found some link between HRV and fitness, meaning higher HRV, higher fitness. But many, many studies found no relation there, especially when doing interventions. So, you know, longitudinal studies where you take people through a training program and then um, you measure their HRV at the beginning and at the end. And many of these studies found that uh, heart rate changed and it was lower, but they couldn't find any change in HRV. So it might be that maybe there is, um, I don't know, a stronger genetic component there. And also physiologically speaking, like the with heart rate, you train, so you train your heart, uh, which then we'll be basically able to pump more blood, like the volume changes, increases like per beat. And that's why your heart rate also decreases, right? The more fit you get, you train your heart muscle, which is going to be able to pump more blood and oxygen to the muscles. And then your heart rate as a consequence is also decreasing. However, this link in terms of HRVs, I don't think it's, it's clear. So in general, even in this study I was mentioning before, where I had all these people doing the 2 max test and then uh, doing also the, um, all the free living recordings, that was not a longitudinal study, so we just got a snapshot of these people. But there we can see clearly there is a very strong relation between heart rate and their fitness level. And this um, holds true for heart rate at rest, for heart rate while they are sleeping, for heart rate during activities. So you always see this relation, which becomes stronger, of course, for more intense activities, but is there already at rest? While with HRV, we couldn't see any link with VO2 max, even at rest or sleeping or anything. So I think in general, HRV might not be the the ideal tool to monitor uh, fitness level. In terms of cardio fitness? Yes, in terms of cardiovascular fitness. And basically as a as a proxy to VO2 max, uh, heart rate at rest seems to be a much better parameter. Yeah. Right. If someone's just looking at their, their resting heart rate, that, that's kind of like the, that's also a standard in, in athletics and so on. People, people watch that. And then you've basically b- built up a bit more on that for your fitness index. Yeah, exactly. So I basically, I use that one and the energy expenditure normalized value together with some adaptation due to age. So that basically the value doesn't depend on age. So here, what the fitness index tries to predict is your maximal heart rate. Basically, it tries to predict, for example, what would be your heart rate if you were running, even though you are now resting and you do these activities in your life, right? And then that your maximal heart rate as and your maximal heart rate, they are basically depending on your age as well, right? So it will decrease over time. And so I apply some correction in there as well to allow people of different age still to get values that they could compare. Right, right. 
So it's all about normalization, right? Getting normalization right so that you can use it, which would mean that you can compare it against different people, right? So just before this call, I was saying, hey, my, my score is 60. What is it like? Is it, does that mean I'm fit or not compared to you and you're, you're 70? And I'm like, damn, I'm less fit than you, right? <laughs> so that, that kind of context where, which is literally what people like to do, right? Yeah, I think so. People want to be a bit competitive about this and, you know, it's, it's part of team sports and so on. And people are, are into this stuff. Exactly. Because for, again, if you, if you look at VO2 max, for example, then it's basically impossible to compare unless you have a person which is basically your age, your gender and your body weight and possibly also your body fat. Then you can compare because otherwise there are too many parameters in them. So I wanted to use this as a bit of a kind of demonstration on what's important in a biomarker if it's going to be useful to us. Mm -hmm. Right. So one of the things you brought up, which is key here, is this normalization so we can compare it to other people. There's a different devices out there, but sometimes we, we can't compare against other people effectively because, as you say, it hasn't been normalized. That's one part. What other things do you feel are important? Like if you just take a biomarker, what would you be looking for to make it effective and useful to make decisions around? I think in general... It's important that we always contextualize these things. And this often goes together with the normalization. Like normalizing parameters means also understanding in which context they were measured. So that's something important. Try to know everything around it and take care of taking measurements in, uh, in similar conditions. Because otherwise it's easy to take the, the wrong conclusions just because some other factors are influencing what we are measuring. It's important to get some benchmarks. Yeah. To understand, so we can understand the implications for our goals. So it'd be good to, I'd like to see in future, you know, if you have more data with your fitness app to see if you can compare the range of readings for different users and, and things like that. I think in general, when we, when we make these tools and we, we release them, it's, uh, for me, it's very interesting to look, take it step by step. First, you try to look at some relations that have been proved already in research, for example, with the heart rate variability apps, I let the people bring, give me some reference points. So basically they can annotate manually when they train, what's the intensity of their training. And uh, in the next versions, they will be able to add some more tags around sleep and all of that. And that's interesting afterwards, because then again, you can put the whole heart rate variability story in context with respect to how they trained and all of that. And then you know from some studies in research in, in literature on maybe a uh, hundred people that there is an important relation between HRV and training. But then you can just scale that at the level of thousands of people and you start verifying all of these relations and then you can start exploring maybe a new ones. So I think that's that's quite powerful. So another thing about this measure and measures that tend to be more useful is its stability. We've often come back to this in a, in a podcast in different episodes with different markers, whether it's laboratory testing or whatever. If a marker is moving around a lot, like HRV is, is kind of moving around a lot, which makes it a little, can make it more uh, difficult to use sometimes. So for, like often you'll see a pattern of it's up one day, down a little bit the next day. It's, kind of, it's always a jagged reading. So you have to kind of take an average of the last three days and things like that to get a stable reading on like where your recovery is. Of course, where there's extremes and it really drops, then you're like, okay, you know, this is a recovery day. But the thing about these biomarkers in general is it does help if they're more stable and they move long, uh, more steadily over time. So you can 
and make decisions on a, on a more even basis because we're not making decisions hour, hour, hour by hour in these cases where it's fitness and, and health. It's more like, what am I doing this week versus next week and so on? Yeah, the, the two cases also with, with HRV, I think it's very powerful because of that, because it can react that way to some stressors. But at the same time, it makes it very difficult to interpret sometimes because even consecutive tests can have uh, very different values. So that makes it quite difficult sometimes. But yeah, with, uh, with heart rate, that's a bit less the case. So indeed, when that's one other reason why maybe heart rate address is better for the cardiorespiratory fitness estimate, because it's more of a stable parameter like cardiorespiratory fitness is. While yeah, HRV is uh, is very good as a parameter which you can use to understand how you are reacting to to certain stressors. Yeah, it's great. So different contexts. Yeah. So I also know that you're now working with data to help mothers with pregnancy. True. So I wanted to touch on that to see what you're doing there because it's an interesting area. Yeah. Well, basically, I'm working at a startup at um, Bloom Technologies where we are working on different aspects. And the goal is to better understand pregnancy complications by monitoring longitudinally different physiological parameters. Since many of these complications, uh, like for example, preterm birth or gestational hypertension or gestational diabetes are poorly understood, let's say. And we cannot, even, even in the developed world, even in the US, the percentage of preterm birth is more than 11%. And the whole medical community is, let's say, a bit struggling around um, how to try to bring this, the epidemics down. So what we are doing there is uh, to try to add some parameters to what we are measuring today, for example, uterine activity or even heart rate, heart rate variability longitudinally over time. And all we discuss now basically becomes important again because during pregnancy, there is even more challenges because all these parameters change also because of pregnancy. For example, heart rate increases by let's say even 10, 20 bits during pregnancy because of course the heart needs to work harder because you need to provide also for the fetus while it's growing. So you will have the additional context of knowing at which stage you are of the pregnancy and trying to understand how all these variables change. So what we hope there is to be able to use this physiological data contextualized longitudinally over time and try to get a better understanding of what is the impact, for example, of uterine activity and physiological stress, active physical activity in all of these complications together with variables which are already known to be affecting pregnancy. So it strikes me like so this could be pretty interesting because you might be able to alert like uh, someone to uh, an issue of a pregnancy. What kind of outcomes do you expect once this, this work is completed? What kind of goals would you have? So I think the, um, the first part would be to try to understand better what parameters are influencing some of these complications. And then for some of them, uh, there are interventions. If you consider hypertension or diabetes, you know, you can reduce activity or stay monitored. And uh, you need to know to be a bit more under control. Others are more complicated, for example, preterm birth, there is really no intervention there. So still by 
understanding better what are the pathways there and what is causing the issue, you could then, after the second step, try to see what is possible to do in terms of, um, for example, behavioral changes. It is, for example, known that high stress as an influence also on preterm birth, right? And on pregnancy outcomes in general. So if you can measure physiological stress, you could also have an intervention around some meditation practice or whatever it is that could lower stress and then try to reduce complications around pregnancy with this kind of feedback loops. Great, great. Thank you. Yeah, I'm guessing it's quite a way off, right, in terms of bringing something to market or, or things like that. Yeah, we hope to have uh, a product by the end of the year uh, around contractions, but again, more, um, uh, let's say more limited, but at the same time, that would allow us to collect data and work with hospitals and doctors to start to explore a bit more around this, using also the power of having consumers with the device and consumer-generated data and like data sets that can grow much faster than with regular clinical studies, but still providing, you know, clinically accurate data. So we'll be looking into that with some collaborations also here, for example, with UCSF um, in San Francisco, where they have uh, our preterm birth initiative that um, we are collaborating with. Great, great. Thanks. So where should someone look first to learn more about the topics we talked about, like VO2 max or are there any presentations on cardio fitness or anything like that you know of, or maybe a, a book that if someone was interested in this to get a better idea of it, they could look up? So uh, there are some uh, some good resources. Maybe I'll just, I'll just provide you some links more on the physiological aspects. I think in general, I'm, I'm happy to see the whole uh, thing moving forwards with this uh, Stanford study. So even just website of these studies, the My Heart Count study would be a good starting point to understand better these things, because indeed it targets as well. Uh, healthy healthy people. So giving a look or set this up, it would be a good starting point for the whole cardiovascular health. Great. We'll put those in the, in the show notes then. What are the best ways for people to connect with you and learn more about what you're up to? I would say through my website, I try to keep it updated or Twitter as well. And normally I'm reactive. So if they want to just drop me a line or an email or something, I'll get back to them for sure. Is there anyone besides yourself you'd recommend to, to learn about cardio fitness and these areas we've been talking about today? For the HRV stories, uh, for sure, all the people you had already on, on, on your show are, are great experts. For the fitness, uh, I, know, I don't know, I would need to think about it because the research I'm doing, being researched now, it means that it's going to take some time before it's out. And so I'm sure there are a couple of other groups that are doing great work there, but I haven't seen much yet. Okay, great. Well, we'll be linking to your stuff in show notes, of course, so people can check that out. Maybe I'll think of something and I'll get back to you on that. Great, thanks. I'd also like to learn a bit more about your personal approach to body data. Do you track any metrics or biomarkers for your body on a routine basis, whether they be labs and so on? So I know currently you're using your own fitness index. Uh, correct. Well, what are you doing in your life or what have you been doing over the last year? So basically I have a much of a maker approach. Like I use this stuff all the time when I make it because I want to try things firsthand and understand, like it helps me a lot understanding the limitations and uh, where things can improve. So I've been using HRV for long because I have these apps around HRV and now I'm 
using also these ones about uh, fitness. In general, the only things I really track is my trainings. So I like to track that and see improvements there. And that's why I also work around all these variables which are connected to activity and fitness and try to basically close uh, the feedback loop like with HRV that gives you advice and fitness that tries to quantify what's your basically current level, what performance can you achieve. Great, great, thanks. Have you got any insights, like from the data you've collected, have you got any insights about your biology? Have you kind of have you made any changes to behavior or taken some kind of actions? Uh, no, I haven't yet. So uh, it's not that I didn't get any insights, but it's that I think it's important to track first for like very long periods, like meaning a year at least before you can start making changes because so many other parameters affect our physiology and performance, especially if I consider training, there are there are months where everything looks the same. Like maybe I haven't traveled much and I kept my diet the same and my stress at work is pretty much the same. And I think I, I haven't overtrained, but still there are some weeks, you know, you don't perform very well. So it would be sometimes easy to make, I think, the wrong conclusions if you tend to make too many changes. So I think it's good to track for very long periods, even HRV, you know, you get all your values you see, and then you look afterwards how your training had an impact and all of that, and then you try to make adjustments. Maybe around HRV, I am making adjustments, like I try to, I tend to follow now what I see there. You find sometimes very interesting things, like sometimes you can spot you're sick before you actually realize you're sick. Like you do your test in bed because your, your HIV is like right, right. hugely affected by that, for example. Like if you just have a fever or something, and maybe in the morning you just don't feel particularly well, but it seems just a regular day. And then your HIV is terribly low. And then the day after you're sick. And that's quite interesting to see. I definitely rely on I've seen that a number of times. If it really drops... Then I'm like, uh oh, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna get some vitamin liposomal vitamin C and stuff like that to try and avoid the crash the next day or minimize yeah. it a bit. So I think it is, yeah, it's pretty useful like that. Yeah, it's quite interesting. Okay, so what would be your number one recommendation to someone trying to use data to make better decisions about their health or performance or longevity? Be consistent. Don't expect short-term miracles, but keep doing it, keep tracking. Try to understand at your personal individual level what is affecting these variables and then slowly start to make changes and try to monitor also how these changes affect the rest. Let it be, I don't know, performance or whatever variable that matters to you. Yeah, I think you make a great point because as you were saying, there's like so many different variables which we can't keep track of, especially in like our busy lifestyles today, right? Whether it's travel to different locations, different food different sleep conditions, uh, work. there's just so many, or maybe different supplements and other things if we're like experimenting things. There's a lot of different variables that can influence. So that makes a lot of sense. So Marco, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a great chat. Thank you, David. To get more of The Quantified Body, subscribe on iTunes or go to the website, thequantifiedbody.net. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-N-T-I-F-I-E-D-B-O-D-Y dot N-E-T. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. On Twitter, we are at twitter.com slash quantifiedbody. And on Facebook, we are at facebook.com forward slash quantifiedbodypodcast. 
If you've got feedback or requests for the show, you can email them to me at damien at thequantifiedbody.net. That's D-A-M-I-E-N at thequantifiedbody.net. Thanks for joining the show this week. See you next time.